Valley Church. Um, it's good to be with you, good to be worshiping with you this morning. We're continuing on in Mark, the book of Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 7 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there um, as you're turning there. Um, Mark has been just a rich, rich book to be studying, as Pastor Jeff has been looking at the last couple of weeks. Um, some of the things that are so unique about Mark is just the way that he focuses in uh, very specifically for us as disciples. And you get this picture from Mark of who Jesus is in a very specific way. And there's this kind of universal call of discipleship. And he's kind of portraying this is what a disciple looks like. This is the way they act. And as people engage with this universal call, you see this picture of Jesus in which there is this growing tension. They're starting to recognize that Jesus indeed is God through some of his miracles, through some of his actions and his teachings. They look at him and recognize that guy's not like the normal guys. Like he's got something unique about him. There is something different. And they would probably be able to recognize this is a divine person at the very least. And they're starting to get the picture, maybe this is God. Who is this? Maybe it's a prophet. We don't know what to make of this. And they had some expectations of God with us, of, of someone coming to kind of deliver Israel. But Jesus was not fulfilling their expectations, as we often hear. And so there's this growing tension between their expectations of what they wanted Jesus to be and what he's actually doing as God. And you start to see this tension begin to pull very hard because Jesus is proclaiming, this is what a disciple is to do. This is those people who are meant to follow me. And there are people, like in our narrative today, the Pharisees who are saying, I don't want to follow you. I don't want to go where you're going. In fact, I want you to get back on track with where I was expecting you to go. And the pull becomes very, very hard. And for us in the church today, this is important to realize, to say, am I expecting God to conform to my expectations of him, or am I willing to follow? And so Jesus presses in very hard at this point on human traditions, and this is often where we can say, I understand who God is in a snapshot, and I expect that he's going to just continue along the way that I want him to continue for all of eternity. And yet, that's not what a relationship with Jesus looks like. That's not what following Jesus looks like. And yet, we can try and make him be like that. And so here, there is something that is very, very helpful for us. And as Jesus enters in, he pushes back on the Pharisees pretty hard in the category of their traditions. And for us, uh, in our modern day and age, we have grown up in a church, in a church world that says tradition is bad. And here's my proof text. Tradition is evil and wrong. I don't want anything to do with it. It's just me and Jesus, so let's just keep doing that. I'm going to sing my songs the way I like to do it. K-Love, get it on the radio, and we're just going to roll along this way. And there's nothing wrong with having a personal relationship with Jesus. But there is also nothing wrong with tradition. But Jesus is pushing back on the way we might hold our traditions. And so this is a very important text for us as we think about how am I to live in relationship with Jesus and believe certain things, hold to certain things, practice certain things in a way that is God-honoring. 
So let's do turn to Mark chapter 7 and hear how Jesus interacts with these Pharisees and gives us this picture of discipleship through this. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read this text together. Uh, this is God's word, and as it enters in here, do hear this. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father and mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we study and look at this text together. Father God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, that your word guides, it directs. Lord, at times it comforts us, and other times it corrects us. Lord, we pray that even as we study this, Lord, we would not have hard hearts, as the book of Mark often identifies, but we would have soft hearts, hearts of flesh, hearts that are a result of new birth, that would be eager and willing to follow you, to listen to your word, to respond to it, So Lord, we pray that even this morning, we would have soft hearts towards your word, towards your character, towards who you are, and Lord, that you would help shape and form us as your people, as the church, as we think on these things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, even as we look at this text, there are some hard words in it, especially related to tradition, and it does kind of leave us reeling of how do I think about traditions then? How should I approach them? Uh, Something I saw this week as a quote from another pastor that was processing this very thing said this, tradition is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. Tradition is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. And I think that is very true just as we begin to approach this thinking of Tradition certainly can get out of hand at times, but it is still very capable of serving the church, serving us, helping us, but it can become very, very hostile, harsh, 
brutal towards those in the church. When we think of some of the things that Jesus is identifying within the Pharisees, there is this hardness of heart in the Pharisees that he is after, and that we have seen come up again and again in the book of Mark that starts to say, I have my tradition, and the tradition has almost moved to this place that it is over God. It has elevated itself to say it has more authority than the word of God itself. And at that place, it becomes immovable, and it becomes hostile, harsh, difficult. It doesn't care if it runs someone over. It just is. And it doesn't have life like God does, the Word of God, the care of God. It does not engage with His people in a way that might feel the same at times. The discipline of the Lord might feel very hard, but it is coming from a loving, caring gracious God who understands what he's doing. A tradition is lifeless. It is dead. It is just a thing that you set on the shelf and look at it and you can imagine how that could become very much like an idol to some degree. And so Jesus is entering in with not necessarily gentle words. He is helping them see the severity of what they're doing here. So as we think about this passage, Jesus is pushing back on these Pharisees. And so something he's teaching us is really coming in the negative. What a disciple is not. What they should not do. But you're also seeing a little bit from the negative a picture of what disciples really should do. And this thing that we can start to discern is disciples really should listen to God's word. Disciples should listen to God's word in everything, regardless of the situation, regardless of what's going on. Disciples should listen and respond to God's word. And that is like a well-duh, but it isn't always a well-duh. We have to be reminded of this. And so for these Pharisees, Jesus starts to unpack this picture that says, we must not oppose Jesus with our traditions. We must not oppose Jesus in our traditions. And we can keep from opposing Jesus if we follow Jesus' teaching here to the Pharisees. One of the longer teaching sections in Mark, one of the things he's trying to show us is don't oppose Jesus or the word of God with your traditions. Don't do this. A couple of ways we will see this is we must not demand acceptance of our tradition alone. Secondly, we must not value our traditions above God's word. And thirdly, we must not mandate any tradition in opposition to God's character or God's word. So as we enter in here, we're going to start to get this picture of how do our traditions get out of control. So firstly, we must not demand acceptance of our tradition alone. So let's look at verses 1 to 5 again here. See what Jesus is saying. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless, their hand, unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, And dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribe asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
We must not demand acceptance of our tradition alone. And here the Pharisees are coming to investigate what Jesus is doing. Obviously, he's starting to emerge as somewhat of a figure. And they're saying, who is this guy? And not only who is this guy, we're starting to hear he's opposing the way that we do things. The way that we've taught to do things. He's starting to come directly after our teaching Obviously, if you can think if you're in any position of authority, someone who starts to directly oppose your teaching, like, whoa, 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 this is going to undermine everything that we're about. This is going to undermine the whole integrity of the system. So you can imagine why the tension starts to emerge here as Jesus comes in and says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And in the tradition of these elders, they thought there were certain ways to wash cups, to wash your hands. And this wasn't just cleanliness. This was actually ceremonial washing, saying something about our condition before God. We are an unholy people. They recognized this. And within the law of Moses, there were certain ceremonies of washing that would start to show that I have the need to be clean before I enter in. And this is morally, ceremonially. And so as you come before the presence of God, if you were not clean, It was a very dangerous place to stand. It doesn't actually make you clean, but it does help teach you and show you that you are unclean. And so they took some of these ceremonies about washing that are in the Old Testament, and they expanded them. They said, if this is good, then this must be better. Let's wash more things. You're going to wash your hands. You're going to wash your cups. You're going to do all these things. So they extrapolated this further and further. And eventually, it turned into this thing of, If you don't do this, you're out of accord with what we've taught. This thing started to move out. And Jesus said, this is not in the law of Moses. This is not something that you can mandate. This is not something that I even care that you do. In fact, stop it. We're just not going to do it. And so this starts to help us think about what is the authority that God has given us. He's starting to press into You've taken an authority that maybe you shouldn't have. What did they do? Well, God has given to leaders within the church, leaders within Israel. He said, you are to shepherd. You are to govern. You are to care, protect for these things. Oftentimes within the church, one of the things that we will say is that the nature and the authority of the church or the elders of the church or the leaders of the church is ministerial in nature. It is declarative It is to govern. So that means you can use God's word to care for God's people, to govern, even correct at times, but you are not coming up with laws. Think of even the different branches of our government. There are certain branches that should not cross into others. Legislative, administrative, judicial, you start to think of these different categories. God very much had these for the elders and the leaders to say, This is where you belong. It is to shepherd and care. And when they didn't shepherd and care for God's people, he had some very hard things to say for them. To say, why haven't you been doing your job? This is one of the indictments that starts to come up in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And he's not very kind to them for neglecting their job to seek to do his job. To say, I'm going to come up with new laws for our people. So they start to go a little farther than they may, maybe should have. doesn't mean that certain traditions can't be helpful still, but they certainly had gone beyond where they were called to be. And we think even in our own church, and there are certain things that start off 
it can be easy to look at this and just say, like, well, that's silly. It can be easy to start off with something that might be helpful. We might say, uh, or leaders in the church, and you often hear this, it might be helpful to say, for young men, especially in our culture, that is a very sexually broken and driven world, it's a good idea to have something like an internet filter, like Covenant Eyes on your computer. And you say, well, maybe you might want to try that out. And then you might say, well, maybe like even young people shouldn't even have computers alone. And you're like, well, maybe that's a good, a good principle. And you go a little further and you say, well, there's a lot of junk on TV. So maybe like don't have Netflix or don't have Amazon or don't have Disney. And you go, okay, a little more. And then you go to the point and you say, well, maybe uh, none of our members should really do that. It's just safer. And you go a little further and you say, actually, if you do, you're in sin. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, we've just categorically changed from something that could be actually very, very helpful to say put covenant eyes on your computer to you are now legislating on behalf of God something that you have no business doing. Now, what do we have the business saying is you shall not commit adultery. You shall not lust in your heart. You shall not do these types of things that God actually commands in his word and we do have to come under God and stop when his word doesn't go any further and say, I, can't tell, I can tell you this might be wise and helpful, and it really could be. And there is a lot of wisdom in some of those decisions you might make, but then to legislate it, it turns a whole different corner. And this is the type of thing that they had done. And so you can see how easy it is for our hearts to grab something that is helpful and make it an ultimate thing and say, and that would make it clean, easy, nice. But one of the things you start to realize is that clean, easy, nice tradition, regulation, law isn't a God. It doesn't know how to care for you. That rule doesn't know how to shepherd God's people. That rule doesn't know where he is taking you in his redemptive plan. That, that law is cold, harsh, unfeeling. So to place it at that point is really... Uh, one, it's inappropriate, but it's also quite silly to say, I want that law instead of my God to walk me through this, to walk my, go my God to actually deal with the heart condition in, in my heart that actually leads me towards lust versus a rule to just protect the lust from coming out. So this is the type of thing that Jesus pushes very, very hard on. And tradition can be very, very helpful, can be a terrible taskmaster. And Jesus presses in very hard here, very quickly. When we move away from God, our, there is this move away from God. Our hardened hearts have elevated tradition too quickly. This is the thing you start to, to see. And then we start to ask the question, well, I mean, this is kind of a difficult area. Where is too high? When have I taken a tradition that was helpful and when have I moved it to the point that it might have gone a little too high? So firstly, we see that is what Jesus is after. Secondly, we see we must not value our traditions above God's own word. So we must not move them above God's word. Let's look at verses 6 to 9 here. It goes on and he says this, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. We must not value our tradition above God's own word. And so here, since the Pharisees do want to enter in and they want to talk about this is what makes a person clean. They said, let's talk about this. These, these disciples you have, they're unclean. He says, well, if you want to enter into this conversation about what actually makes a person clean, let's go right to the issue. Let's go right there. And Jesus starts to enter in and he says, what have I told you about what makes a person moral, right, good? Is it their hands? Is it the things they eat? There's many scriptures you can probably start to think about of what did God actually say about this? And he enters right in. He says, you can honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I don't want your filthy rags, is some of the language in Scripture. I don't want your filthy rags. I want your heart. He said, you want to get to what actually makes you good, righteous, moral? If you don't lust after a person to the point of adultery, great. But did you do it in your heart? He's like, you want to get down to the real issue. Let's go there. Are you actually willing to listen to my word of what is the chief issue here? must not value our traditions above God's word. What did God say is important? Here he directs us to, and this isn't the first time he's ever said it. God has said this again and again. And they're like, well, if you'd have just said it clearly. And God's like, I have <laughs> many times. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Pharisees would know scripture, and they should know this. He goes in, and what does God identify as important? This is one of the famous text for this. Man looks at the outward appearance. Where does God look? The heart. God looks at the heart. God sees these things. He knows these things. He wants these things to be right. This is where all of our works come out of. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. This is a command to all of Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The affections of our hearts is one of the main things that God is after. I want you not just to do things for people, but I want you to love them. Much harder to do, to change those parts of my heart. And so I go down to the tradition and say, I'm just going to get the outward actions right. That's a little easier to mandate, and I'm going to make a tradition about it and push that forward. And, God, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. What I'm after is far, far deeper. And don't you dare diminish the thing I'm trying to do in redemption. Matthew 22, he gets questioned on this in a different scenario. And someone asks him, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, I can take the whole thing really quickly and bring it down to the thing I'm really after that I've said again and again and again. Love God and love your neighbor. I'm after conditions of your heart, your affections. So you want to know what makes you moral, what makes you righteous, what makes you good? There are actions that come out of these, just to be clear. There are things that you must do, but to say, if I get my actions in order, all of a sudden I'm going to be righteous and good. It's like Jesus says, no. You don't understand the beginning of your problems with God, if that's what you think. You are needing a new heart. This is what the new covenant promises to say, you have a heart of stone, I need to give you a heart of flesh. He doesn't say your, your actions are all out of place. He says, no, what you need in the gospel is a new heart. 
Don't elevate what you think is important above what God says is important. We must not elevate those types of things. All of this is based on relationship, learning to live in relationship with God, learning to listen to him. Jeremiah chapter 7 says this to his people. He says, but I gave a command to them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But if you do not obey or incline their ear, but they did not obey and incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels, and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backwards, not forwards. Why did they do that? The stubbornness of their heart stubbornness of your heart all these issues emerge from the heart to neglect the heart the thing that god says you need to figure out you're going backwards and oftentimes we think like well they were just rotten evil people like just totally how could they become like that it's like this is entirely possible for people that look good and godly if you neglect the heart pharisees looked good and godly And he would speak very hard words to them, saying, you're my enemies, (laughs) in so many words. It's like, you want to be a disciple of God, soften your heart to him, listen to him, live in relationship with him. Say, Lord, I am actually paying attention to the way you say things, the things that you value, I'm going to value, the things that you say, I'm going to say, the way that you walked, I'm going to try and walk in a similar way. Think about even just the relationships that we know. God bases his relationship with us on human relationships often. So you think even a marriage relationship. How is a marriage loving and good? Well, you look at a couple that gets married, and they love each other. It's evident to everyone. They're all over each other. You're like, oh, they love each other. Such a beautiful marriage. The pictures are wonderful. And 20 years later, they might come back and say, well, things are falling apart. And you might have a friend to get together with them or a counselor and say, all right, just tell me what's going on. And you can probably guess how this unfolds. The husband might say, well, I've done everything you can imagine for her. I don't understand. Like, this is ridiculous. I, have, I buy, buy her flowers every week. I make her a smoothie every morning. I bought a cruise for her. I bought her a new car. I mean, I'm doing all this stuff regularly, not even the little bit of, bit of gratitude. Friend counselor looks to the wife and says, is this true? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not true in my marriage. That's crazy. And she's like, yeah, that's true. He did all those things. But I told him, I'm allergic to the milk you use in the smoothie, so I can't drink them, so I pour them out every morning. I'm allergic to flowers. Why do you keep buying me these things? He bought me a two-seater when it's like we have four kids. Like, what help is that car? He bought me a cruise when I was going into surgery. And the counselor could look back at the man and be like, are you kidding me? Like, are you listening at all? So I don't care what you did. Like, it's a terrible relationship. You have no ability to listen. And this is very much the case with our traditions at times, to say, I thought this would honor you, God. I thought that I would do the things that you wanted me to do. So we set up this system. We're going to wash all our plates in a certain way that we think you might like. And Jesus enters in and says, I don't want that. When did you ever think I wanted that? I wanted you to love me. 
I wanted you to actually listen to me. I wanted you to obey my voice, to follow me. I don't want you to assume I'm a holy God and that you know how to engage with the holy God. I want you to follow and listen to the way I make it possible for you to engage with the holy God. Are we willing to listen and follow God the way that disciples follow God? This is a lot easier said than done, but this is a relationship. A relationship pushes us back into God regularly to say, God, I don't know what to do. I know that I'm supposed to honor you. I know that I'm supposed to be honest, good, gentle, kind. I know that I'm supposed to lead my family well. I know that I'm supposed to worship you. I know that I'm supposed to even share the gospel with my neighbors, but I don't always know exactly what that looks like. I don't know what honoring you in this situation looks like. You come back to Scripture again and again, saying, Lord, would you lead me? Come back to prayer again and again. As much as it would be nice to put God in a tight little box and say, this is exactly what you're supposed to do, this is how you live, like, how in the world do we think we are putting an eternal, infinite God inside a tradition? How in the world do we think we can do that with a relationship with God? We look at the Spirit, the third person in the Godhead. Where does the Spirit go? It moves where it wants to, comes and goes, acts the way it wants to. It doesn't sound super neat and tidy for engineer types like me who like things to be neat and tidy in categories. God says, this is what relationship with me looks like. Will you follow me? Will you listen to me? There is order. There is a reason for these things. God is not random, but we are meant to follow. We are not meant to say, I think I know where you're going. <laughs> now you can sit down. I think I know where you're going. Okay, let's do this. Very, very tempting. And this is something, if we're not careful with our hearts, we have to repent of regularly. Come back to it again and again to say, Lord, I stepped in front of you. Just like the, the disciple would often, Peter especially, say, I stepped in front of you. Like, let me get back into where you have me to be once again. Tradition can indeed be very helpful, but it must be done in right relationship with God, under his authority and in response to what he actually said. So we must not elevate our traditions above God's own word. And thirdly, we must not mandate tradition that is in opposition to God's own action or character. This is one of the ways we know that we have really crossed the line. If we are mandating a tradition that is in opposition to who God is himself, the way God has acted himself, there's probably a problem there. Let's read verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father and mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or Mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And here we see Jesus entering in 
to the traditions of men, helping us see the way things have moved. And in this example that he brings up of what the elders have done, you see it gets pretty messy pretty fast, and people get run over pretty fast. What did the law teach, the law of Moses regarding parents? Jesus brings this up. You shall honor your father and mother. We know this one. And he goes on, he says, if you don't honor them, if you don't you know, hold them in this esteem, and in fact, if you revile them, you shall die. Because this is in, I mean, this is a fairly different culture than we have. This is a culture in which you have to, you know, find your own food, find your own shelter, protect yourself, care for yourself. I mean, it's a very different type culture. And so if you don't have the ability to care for yourself as you get older, like a lot of this is hard physical manual labor. You don't have the ability to do this, to have a trade anymore. That very potentially could have been a death sentence to a parent. To say, good luck. Have a nice life. You're going to die and I'm going to move on with my life. And so the law of God was actually fairly fair. It said, if you don't, if you can commit your parents to death, like you shall surely die. Don't do that. God had a care for our parents for our generation said, you shall love them as you love yourself. <laughs> it shouldn't be that shocking to us the way that God tells us to care for our families. And so what did the Pharisees do with this? Well, something that we have done again in the church, again and again, is to say, well, if you give the money that you would have given to care for your parents to the church, then you don't have a debt to your parents anymore. It's given to God. It's Corbin is the word it uses. And so it's like, well, you've been forgiven of that debt you have to your parents. And not only that, Jesus says, like sometimes there was probably a situation where every now and again the parents were fine without the money. It's like, well, if you have the money anyway and you want to give it to the church, good. And then it moved into this thing like, well, if you gave the money that, to the church, you actually can't give it to your parents. Like it needs to be given to the temple, to the church. I was like, whoa. Now you gave money to the church, and you actually are commanded by this law to neglect them. <laughs> you see how a law all of a sudden is at the expense of people, and is this even in line with the character of God? To care for the broken, the needy, the outsider? Is this in line with God's character for us, the way that he's even dealt with us? Does this, does this tradition even fit whatsoever? We say, what in the world? How does this type of thing even happen? Well, as we looked at before, part of it is it happens because we stepped into the legislative role to think I have the ability to write laws. We don't. But the other is that we actually have separated what God has said from who he actually is and think we can figure it out that we can have God's law without God himself, to think that I can evaluate God's law apart from the way he actually engaged with the law himself. What did Jesus do when he actually engaged with the law? What did God actually do with people when he engaged with the law? Oftentimes, one of the things you see is this is God's law, but he was gracious, merciful, kind, long-suffering with you. He gave you time and time again. He walked with the people 
and he disciplined. And it was always for this pattern of redemption to say, I want to restore a relationship with you. Even when he disciplined the people, he said, I want you to continue to go. I want this relationship to work. He is for you. He is not against you. He's fighting on behalf of you. This law sounds like it's an exception just for my benefit. It's just clearly for the benefit of the church, benefit of the person. I don't necessarily want to deal with my parents, so I'm going to try and stick them off. This is even something for us in our own culture to think, like, are we meant to just neglect things that are difficult in our life? The pattern of our culture is like, well, just stick your parents in retirement homes and forget about them. This is not God's character. This is not the way we should do that. And it, I'm not saying this because it's always easy to care for family. I'm not saying this because it's always possible. I'm saying there is a heart of God that says something very different than these laws often kind of push ourselves into. Something that is very, very difficult for us. But if we look at the law of God, we look at our obedience to it. We look at these traditions, and it cannot be abstracted from who God is. Sinclair Ferguson said this, the law and our obedience to it must never be abstracted from the character of the person who gave it. And he's absolutely right. To take the law outside of who God is is just, it's nonsense. You can't do it. And that is raising the law up above God, to raise even the Bible up above who God is himself, to say, I'm going to take this and I don't want God himself. Why do we call this the living Bible? Because you don't separate this word from who God is. You don't separate this word from the real God himself. These words are meant to be in connection and relationship to God himself and to say, I just want the rules and laws and regulations that this thing might give me to make my life nice and neat and orderly. That's doing violence to God. And you're not representing him well. How important it is to know God as we seek it is what it is that we must do. We must know who God is. Follow him. Listen to him. What did he do? Many, many texts talk about these things. The tension here. First John says it this way. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Very easy to quickly go to, like, well, I just need to do the things he says. Come back to this again, and what did it say? Walk the same way in which he walked. You've got to pay attention to the way that Jesus walked. You've got to pay attention to the way that Jesus acts. You've got to see the way that he interprets the law. It's not a dead law. You're saying, I want to know how he did this, and I want to do it the same way. That is the discipleship Jesus is after, to say, are you engaging with the laws of God in the same way that God intended them to be engaged with? That's not easy. It's dynamic. There's many, many situations, and we have to learn how to do this. To be able to just say, here's the law, go figure it out. That's not discipleship. That's not relationship with God. There's something very, very different about this. It gets very 
difficult at times. We think even of what was going on in the church of Corinth. Very, very messy with some of the things going on here. The Apostle Paul enters in when it comes to some of the sexual immorality, some of just, just gross misconduct according to the law of God. And he has to clarify things. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's not saying this is not a big deal. In fact, he had just said, like, you should discipline this person out of the church so that they might be restored into the church. But there's a very seriousness to sin. But he's saying, you have to know how to engage with this. What would we think? Well, God says he's holy. We must be holy. I can't be near those people. Don't touch them. Make a tradition. Don't be near anyone. We could come up with the same tradition. Wash anytime you're near the greedy, the swindlers, the sexually immoral. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing. Like, no. <laughs> you would have to leave. What did Jesus do? Think of the high priestly prayer. It's the same thing he says. I don't ask that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. We are called to be in this world. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to know how to engage with it. And it doesn't mean sin is not a big deal. It doesn't mean you're not calling people to repentance. But how did Jesus live? I think I remember him being accused many, many times of being the one associating with drunkards, swindlers, liars, prostitutes. Like, and he probably was called a few names because of that. And you could imagine if you spent time showing care and love for people who are in those types of situations, you might get called a few names. In fact, when you think about just whether or not you accept God, the problem of evil becomes very difficult. And the fact that God didn't just wipe us off the face of the earth, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard God accused of evil. and say, well, God, you allowed evil. You must be responsible for it. And this morning, we were looking at it with the kids. Up in New City Catechism, looking at the New City Catechism, God created all things and it was all very good. It never says God created evil, but He allows it to maintain relationship with us, to earn relationship back, to pay for it. He even suffers for it. it continues on and on. So as we follow Jesus, we don't say, I just want God apart from the way he lives in the world. I don't want his law apart from the way he actually engages. Because it is very, very difficult to know how do you engage with a sinful, broken world and still maintain a relationship with a good, holy God. I need to be a disciple of Jesus to do that. I can't think of a tradition that would handle that. I can't think of a rule that would handle that. I can't think of a number of rules that would be able to teach me how to do that. I can't think of any way that I would know how to enter into the brokenness of our world and just have a list of books that tells me, in this situation, do this. In this situation, do this. In this situation, do this. Like, no, I need a relationship with a living God. And I am very interested about what he's going to do. <laughs> I am very interested about how he will teach me to deal with this. And yet, traditions are helpful. I don't want to arrive at a place after reading something like this to say, traditions are worthless. Traditions are useless. 
Confessions are worthless. Confessions are useless. Doctrine is worthless. Doctrine is useless. No, it's not all about relationship. There is a place for tradition to be as we enter into this relationship with God. God often teaches us certain traditions to have. He shows us the way that we can confess certain truths. We can believe certain things, hold to certain things, practice certain things, trust in what he has already done, remind ourselves of these things. If we don't have these traditions, oftentimes we lead ourselves to lawlessness. So it doesn't matter. It's just relationship. It can lead to meaninglessness. I can believe whatever I want to believe. It leads to theological liberalism. The Bible can't really be a document. It's so easy to abuse this thing, so like, don't even trust it. You can imagine where you would get to if you held a view that tradition, rules, laws had no place whatsoever. That's not what Jesus is pushing back on. He's been pushing back on some different things to say don't. To say that your, your laws can just be created in abstraction from God. Don't raise them above God. And actually consider how God engages with them himself. We must always keep our traditions in their proper place. And traditions actually become extremely wonderful and beautiful for us. We think of some of the many traditions that we have within our world. Every single week we gather for communion. It's a tradition. It exemplifies the work of God on our behalf. See a little bit of the difference in the traditions, though. One is saying, this is how you earn your way to God. This is how you make your life right. This is how you keep your morality in check. And the other is saying, this is everything God has done for you. Which tradition is a lot safer ground to stand on? Not to say there's no guardrails. that God, God's given us guardrails to say, like, don't fall into sin. Covenant eyes is okay. But the tradition that you really can enjoy the fruit of is something that God has given us to say, as often as you gather, take this meal. Be reminded of the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, these things given to you on your behalf, the the central message of the gospel. Think of our tradition of Christmas, the incarnation, God entering in, God divesting all of his glory, coming down as a human a wonderful tradition to think that God would actually go that far to be in relationship with me. Think of our tradition of Easter. The beauty of the resurrection, the pinnacle of everything that God would accomplish in redemption, the hope of the believer to say, I now have the hope that death is defeated. Eternal life is real. How many promises of God become true because of the resurrection? That's a pretty rich and sweet tradition that I'm not ashamed of at all. And many of these are declaring the work of God on my behalf. And those do change my heart if I repeat them. Those do start to shift and move my affections to say, man, if my heart now becomes more in line with God, what do you think is going to come out? Good, godly actions. Righteous actions. Actions that are in line with God's character. Actions that are in line with the way God created me to be. Creating a tradition that's trying to manipulate that, that's only going to stand up so long. It's going to break and then it's going to hurt someone and it's going to devastate someone else. But following God in the midst of this, making sure our traditions are squarely under the rule and authority of God, it's very, very different. 
And these traditions came up again and again. We'll read one from Exodus chapter 13 as we close, just being reminded that God is not afraid of tradition. Jesus was not afraid of tradition. But he wanted to be God still. And he wanted God to be God still. And he wanted his word to be an authority still. Exodus 13, reminding the people of all that God had just done for the people of Israel as they lived in captivity to redeem them. He says, I didn't just do this. Now here's a tradition. Remind yourselves of this. Think on these things. Hold to these things. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. You shall tell your son on that day, It's because of what the Lord did for me that I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And when the time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. There is a richness to our traditions in the church. There is a richness to the things that God has given us. And if we look at these traditions that we hold to, we should be able to say the same thing. When your son asks you, when your daughter asks you, what does this mean? By a strong hand, God has delivered me from my sin. By a strong hand, Jesus entered in and befriended me. By a strong hand, Jesus was able to do these things. By a comforting hand, by a loving hand. This is a relationship that I have with God that is entirely because of the work of God himself. These traditions built within the church that are built upon the character of God, the work of God, are very, very sweet and things to be celebrated for us in the church, trusted in, held to, to be reminded on, and they are to be taught. But as Jesus enters in here, there are ways in which we can see a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. And ultimately, that is just idolatry. Jesus is saying, put that to death. Kill that thing. You, you hear the way he pushes on it, and it is extremely firm for those reasons. There is life to be found in God. Life-giving nature to be found in following these traditions that actually exemplify who he is rightly, that bring us into relationship with him. And traditions that are dead, traditions that are hostile, traditions that cause violence to the character and nature of God should say, we should stop and ponder and say, God is alive. He's not dead. God is a shepherd. He's not hostile. God is caring. God is loving. Even in his discipline, where it might be hard, even in those areas I don't understand, it should not be dead orthodoxy that we see coming out of our traditions. So as the church, let us be reminded to come back again and again as disciples to say, I must follow my Jesus. 
can't follow dead or unorthodox traditions. Let's do pray as we close.